Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart back here at the end of yet another week with my good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts, who's going to make sense of everything that's happening in the markets for us. Hey, Lance, how you doing? I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> sure you are. Well, Just we'll like everybody else. Together. Yeah, we'll figure it out together here. Folks, you may notice I'm in a different background than normal. I'm on the road this week. I'm actually back on the East Coast. Uh, so taking time for my travels to make sure that Lance and I get your weekly market recap in this week. Might be a little uh, less structured than normal, might be a little shorter than normal. My apologies for both of that, but we'll still try to make it informative and entertaining. So Lance, to kick things off, uh, up week in the markets here. Um, what do you have to say about that? Uh, market beginning to get a little bit of octane back in it? Well, no. And again, this is, you know, pretty much exactly kind of what we would expect, you know, and as we talked about, let's go back a few weeks and uh, we were talking about in, in August that, sorry, in July, that the markets were getting extremely overbought and that we would need some sort of correction at, at that point you know, three to five to 10 percent would be completely normal. And, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone whatsoever. And of course, then in August, we had this a bit of a pullback and everybody's like, oh my gosh, the bear market's back, which, you know, we also said that that would be the case, right? The bears would come out and say, see, I told you it was a bear market rally and now it's all over. Um, you know, but the reality is, is that that correction was very much needed. And now we're just going through this very kind of normal process of, of you know, kind of holding on to, to previous trends and these type of things. So um, let me share, if you don't mind, can I share my screen real quick? Absolutely. This is a chart of, of the S&P with a couple of just real simple indicators. The top chart is the, the MACD. That's kind of our basic, very simplest, simplistic, you know, buy, sell, you know, kind of indicator. Now, look, you know, there's a, a if you talk to people that are super adept at technical analysis, there's about a billion different technical indicators. I'm not a technical analyst by nature. Um, I'm a fundamental analyst. And, and so when we when we do things, we look at fundamentals, we look at valuations, we look at earnings growth, we look at those type of things. We use a very simple overlay of technical analysis just to help provide some risk management to portfolios. So yes, I understand. Don't email me a bunch of these indicators and that indicator. It, it doesn't matter to me. What I'm looking for are some very, I have a very basic, simple set of tools. I use three moving averages, a relative strength index, and a MACD indicator. That's pretty much it in terms of managing portfolios, because all I want to know is, is our prices trending higher? Or are they trending lower? Or, or what's going on? And so if we take a look at the S&P, we've been in a very nice bullish uptrend, really since going back to October of last year, but you can just see this kind of trend channel that's been forming here lately. We got to the top of that trend channel. Every time we get there, we sell off to the bottom of the trend channel. Then we rally back up to the top and back down again. And, and that's all that's going on in the market. So the rally this week, not surprising. You know, We've just been kind of flopping around here for the last couple of weeks. Um, as we talked about earlier, July, uh, August, September tend to be sloppy trading months. That's exactly what's going on here. That's beginning to work. You know, some of this previous overbought condition we had, we got oversold and we're kind of slopping around here. Yesterday was quadruple witching uh, day for options expiration. It was a, one of the largest on records that we had. And, and so, you know, volatility here, you know, this whole week is not surprising heading into that options expiration. Um, but this is all setting us up potentially for that end of the year push, which is October, November, December, 
which typically tends to be more bullish. Does that mean absolutely with 100% that we're going to have a bullish rally into the end of the year? No, that does not. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that seasonally, historically, going back over time, October through basically May, that's the, the strongest six months of the year that we talk about a, a good bit. Those That seasonally strong period of time, end of the year, into the beginning of next year, is when money flows are coming into the market. Starting in October, you're going to have roughly $5 billion a day in stock buybacks coming into the market. So again, corporations, and this is going to be the, the mega cap stocks and large cap companies. This won't really affect small and mid cap much because they don't do stock buybacks. But in the large cap end of the index, you're going to have a lot of stock buybacks coming in through the end of the year. You're also going to have portfolio managers chasing performance into year end. They've got to get their performance levels up. If you look at the bifurcation between the S&P and the equal weight index, that is, there has not been a bunch of return. If you've owned stocks outside of the top 10, we've talked about this a bunch, but anything outside the top 10 really hasn't performed well that year, so this year. So if you've had any type of diversification at all, your performance is well below what the, the S&P index is. Unfortunately, if I'm a large cap manager, I've got to chase the S&P index. So look for some performance chasing into the year end. Got to get that window dressing done by the end of December so that I don't lose my job um, as a portfolio manager because there's what's called career risk. So again, you know, right now what the market's doing exactly as expected, exactly what you know, we've been talking about here. Um, expect another week or so of, of kind of sloppy, crappy trading. And then once we get through the Fed meeting next week, which I suspect they're not going to say anything different that the markets will interpret that the Fed is now done hiking rates and that potentially sets us up for uh, some better performance heading into year end. All right. Hey, keep this chart up for a sec, Lance. Sure. So, um, uh, great insights and, and, and great commentary as always here. Uh, as you may remember, we had Sven Henrik, who does TA for a living, yeah. uh, and looks at, he does look at the billions of permutations of this. <laughs> yes, uh, he does. <laughs> and, and he, like you, I would say, you know, is quite bearish on on a fundamentals basis. <laughs> um, but he says, look, the markets trades as the markets trade. And uh, this year, the market has traded extremely well uh, on technical analysis. Uh, technical analysis has had a lot more sort of predictive and explanatory power in, you know, uh, in defining or explaining what helping us understand how the market action has happened um, way more than the fundamentals. Um, and he's saying, yeah, at some point in time, I think the fundamentals will matter, but until they do, we got to trade the way the markets are going here. Right. One chart that he had put up, uh, which he said, isn't really even true TA was just a chart of seasonality in the markets. And it was an, an average of uh, the previous 20 years of S and P uh, market behavior. And he said, that's basically the script the market's been following this year. If it continues to follow it this year, like you said, Lance, uh, he said that the market should finish the year substantially higher. Um, are you trying to, are you, are you pulling up a link that's uh, related to what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Yes. So look at the end of, uh, of, of that, you know, the, the right end of that chart period. And you see that the, oh, sorry, sorry, they jumped on me real quick. No worries. But you see that the market kind of makes a big run there to the end of the year, right? right? So, you know, that's what Sven is just saying. I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen, but be mentally prepared for it because this market has been 
following the script all year, right? So if it does, you you had that that um, that bullish uptrend channel in the previous chart, right? And right. it looks like were the market to run back to the high end of that channel, uh, we're talking what, like about 4,650, 4,700? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 4,600, 4,700 by year end would not be out of the realm of, of ordinary. Look, there's some there's some companies at Wall Street firms out there going 5,100 by the end of the year. That's probably not the case. I, you know, there there's certainly a possibility that we could hit all time market highs by the end of the year, depending on how bullish things kind of get. But, you know, I think you get to the top of this trend channel by the end of the year, again, 4,650, 4,700, maybe even 4,750. That's probably a reasonable, you know, expectation for the markets between now and year. And, and remember, if we get back to 4,650, 47, 4,750, we're going to be, the market's going to, the S&P, as a as a as a index is going to be up over twenty percent for the year, and that's you know pretty amazing coming out of a, a market last year where you were down you know twenty five percent at the trough. You're going to have basically have recovered all of that correction last year. You know this year, which again that's why last year was a correction. Uh, you don't recover a bear market in one year. So uh, again, you know what the market's doing this year is very typical following a correction year like we had last year, um, and and so that's where we are. Okay. And again, folks, you're not necessarily calling for 4,700 or 4,750 on the S&P, but you're saying the potential for it is certainly possible and it's really not dismissible. It's almost sort of where the the trend is heading. Again, not saying you're calling it there, but if you're a bear, this is what I'm underlying here. If you're a bear and if you're saying, wow, I distrust this market from a fundamental standpoint and I want to start positioning against that, maybe aggressively using shorts or whatnot, just be cautious that the momentum right now is not in your favor. And Lance, you mentioned, you know, some calls of like 5,100 or whatnot by end of year. So I, you know, for months now, as the market has, you know, been strong this year, I'd say once it sort of passed 4,300, I started getting uh, a lot of comments from people saying, Hey, you know, there are a couple of people out there who are calling for S and P 6,000 and you get to get them on this channel. Cause here's that melt up that they've been talking about. I just want to ask you, uh, I mean, of course, anything's possible, but how realistic do you think, you know, in the next six to nine months, we would see a melt up of that type of magnitude? Uh, probably to, to 6,000. Uh, that's probably, a, 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 if, again, you know, we always, you, you can never say, I'm going to spit this out. So give me just a second. <laughs> <laughs> you can never say with certainty that absolutely something is never going to happen, right? right. That's a very dangerous perception about anything in the markets. There's always possibilities and always probabilities. And so as a portfolio manager, as an investor, you need to assign a probability to even the most outlandish, you know, prediction, say, okay, you know, I get it, 6,000 in the S&P, no way that'll ever happen. Maybe the case, but we need to give it a 10% weight that there's certainly something that could happen that would drive stocks to that to that point. And what would that be? Well, that would be the Fed coming out tomorrow and you know, saying, you know, we're cutting rates to zero tomorrow and we're gonna start doing uh, 500 billion a month in quantitative easing. And that would certainly drive the markets right to, I mean, that would be like the next day would be at 6,000. Um, so you've always got to, to give it a possibility because we never know what is going to happen, you know, economically? You know, this was last week's article on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com on Tuesday. 
talking about market predictions. And, you know, you know, you always have to be careful with gurus who say, oh, this is going to happen with certainty by this time next year. We're absolutely going to be here. You can take that and pretty much discount that for all of its worth. Uh, you know, even meteorologists, as we show in the in the article, are only right for three days. At 10 days, a weather, and you got to think about the amount of data, real-time data that, that meteorologists have, right? They have weather patterns, humidity, um, you know, weather, uh, you know, global temperatures, sea level temperatures, you know, atmospheric pressures. They have all that data to work with and a bunch of historical data that says, okay, when these this environment is correct, this is what's going to generate this weather pattern. They're only at 10 days, they are only 50% correct. So how, how can you take anybody with all the macro events that we have no control over, economics, politics, geopolitics, um, you know, just earnings, uh, corporate events, uh, weather events that affect commodity prices, with all that uncertainty, how can you predict anything 12 months in advance? It's just ludicrous. So uh, that's analysis is so very important in the short term and why we rely so much on it in the course of a week or a month or three months, because that's about all it's worth. Uh, technical analysis is only good for a week to a month at the most. Outside of that, it starts even getting really kind of iffy. Trends are important. We can we can measure trends. We can monitor trends. But, you know, again, back to your question, when somebody says, oh, we're going to have this extraneously large move in the markets in one direction or the other, it could be up or down. You know, there's people out there saying, hey, this market is going to be back at 3,800 by next year. Maybe there's certainly the risk of that happening, but we have to assign it a smaller percentage. The probability is, is markets are going to trade within a given range based on earnings and fundamentals uh, for a period of time, market psychology, liquidity. Those are the things that are going to drive the markets in the short term. And markets are, are going to basically trend in one direction over time. And generally, that trend is bullish. The more, majority of the time, that trend is bullish. The minority of the time, that trend is bearish. And you need to keep that within your wheelhouse of, of measuring kind of market outcomes. Okay. I'm going to re-ask the question slightly differently just to, okay. to get a bead for what I think, you know, the viewers are looking for here, which is some are saying, oh, you know, th th these people who've been making these big predictions, mm -hmm. hey, yeah, it's taken a while longer than they thought, but 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 now is, is the opportunity. And mm -hmm. let me just restate what I heard you say, which is like really extreme moves like that. Uh, don't happen very often. <laughs> and looking at both the fundamental and the technical, I don't think you see a, a, a rationally high probability of a big upside move like that, unless, as you said, there is some unexpected and extraordinarily extreme sort of central planner move, right? But, it, but, so happen, just, but right, right. So I just shifted my chart back uh, in time. Just to get a, to, to to even just help define this point a little bit more to your to your question, right? Even with so so this is now 2021 through 20 the peak of the market in 2022. Okay, so let's go back to that period of time as a moment. What was going on then? We were doing 120 billion dollars a month in quantitative easing. We were doing we had zero interest rates in terms of the Fed. So even with all that, and then also don't forget, we had $5 trillion in stimulus. We had checks going to households. We had- exactly. you know, Record low about, interest rates. You know, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So talk about the perfect environment for a market melt-up that was just going to be extreme. You can even look at this chart. Yes, we had a very sharp rise in the market. The market went from 3,600 to 4,800 in the year, right? So it was up 22% for the year. 
that's a fairly strong advance. But look how look how perfectly flat it was. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a you know a, a skyrocket higher, right? Even with all that stimulus and all that support and all that bullish, a tremendous amount of bullishness, the market just kind of ground its way higher. And look, all along the way, the market was dipping. It didn't it didn't dip a lot. Those those dips were one, two, three percent most of the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you know, and so they, there wasn't anything you know out of the ordinary. But it was just a nice, steady upward trend over that whole time because it, you know, as as money comes into the market, it doesn't just come all at once, right? This was 120 billion every month that was coming from the Fed. It was, you know, checks being mailed to households, extended unemployment benefits, those type of things. So, you know, you don't get this immediate impulse of money overnight, and and so even in that environment, the most extreme environment that I can think of in recent history the trend was a gradual trend higher. So yes, the market was melting up, but it was doing so in a fairly controlled manner. All right, great. And and sort of just as I gave a caution to maybe the, the folks who are on the very bearish side of things, I wanted to talk about this for the folks who are on the very bullish side of things, um, because I think in both cases, there's sentiment out there that I'm seeing a little bit more of where people are saying, okay, this is the moment and I got to push all my chips on the side of the table. And I'm not saying it can't happen. Right. I just wanted us to have a little dialogue here to say, what's the likelihood of it happening? And it is a quite low probability event. So if you want a position for it, great, but just be aware that you know you, you probably want to have a lot of your portfolio positioned for it not happening because that's a lot more probable as, yeah. as best as we can tell at this stage. Yeah, exactly. And and look, you know, like this is the way we're, we're right now. We're pretty much fully allocated equities. We've been that way now for the past, you know, um, you know, past month or so. And, you know, we're kind of positioning portfolios for this year, end of the year push higher, which, again, you know, we're looking at technicals. We're looking at trends, historical tendencies, those type of things. If that if that fails to mature, if for some reason, you know, we get some surprise piece of economic data or whatever that suggests that, the end of the year isn't going to be, you know, maturing, then we'll reduce that equity exposure. But if October, November, December starts to play out as expected, then we'll probably overweight equity in our portfolio heading into year end. Now, again, you know, predictions are only good for a month or two. And predictions are shoddy, even, you know, once you get past a month, you know, I can pretty much guesstimate what's going to happen next week. And we write about that every day in our daily market commentary. Hey, here's what happened yesterday. This is what we expect to happen today. And we can pretty much nail that most of the time um, because that's just what markets do. That's pretty that, that kind of prediction, that one to three day prediction, five day prediction, kind of like kind of like weather predictions is pretty easy to get right. Once you get, you know, two weeks, four weeks out. It's getting a lot more, um, you know, kind of hit and miss on, on that kind of prediction. So, again, this is one we want to pay so much attention to the trend of the market, what's happening short term. Pay attention to sentiment. Sentiment's very bullish right now. So, again, that's going to drive, you know, the markets. Also, the most important thing about where markets go to between now and the end of the year and into the, even into next year is pay attention to earnings estimates. Earnings estimates precede market moves. Why? Because if earnings estimates are going up, people are going, hey, I'm, you know, earning estimates are going up. So that's lowering the valuation today that I can buy a stock for. And, and, and if the company's going to earn more money, the stock price is going to go up because of higher earnings. I need to buy in today. So there's a very good correlation between earnings estimates and forward returns on the stock market over the course of the next three, six, nine, 12 months. Now, once you get way, way out there, two, three years, that's not the case. But over the short term, 
earnings estimates, and those are being ratcheted up right now because of expectations of stronger economic growth going into next year. That's also going to support the markets into the end of the year. Now, once economic predictions fail to, to, to pan out, those estimates will get cut and, and then earnings will respond accordingly. So you got to be careful. It's all about time frames. Okay, great. And I was actually going to ask you about where the trajectory right now of earnings estimates sounds like they are beginning to get ratcheted back up. Um, you know, we're 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 talking here uh, right in mid-September, Lance, and uh, one one important element that drives stock prices, for better or worse, as we have discussed in the past, um, is stock buybacks. And um, we are entering the Q3 stock buyback blackout period really as of right now, um, I think as of this weekend, roughly 50% of the S&P companies in the S&P index will be in that blackout period. Um, right. It's going to last roughly four to six weeks, they say. Uh, do you expect that to have any sort of near-term impact in the market action? Yeah, yeah. It's it, you know it's an extraction of liquidity. So um, you can see the market slop around, chop around a bit uh, while they're kind of you know in blackout period. Um, so, but again, as soon as we get back, two things are going to happen, right? You kind of have an offset in the short term. You know, you guess you get the extraction of the buybacks as you go into earnings season, but now we're going to have earnings season coming in and earnings have been adjusted to a point to where, once again, we play the millennial earnings season game, which is where everybody gets a trophy for beating earnings estimates. Uh, so again, you'll get that support from earnings season. And then as soon as earnings season ends, then you get the support of buybacks coming back. And as I said earlier, that's going to be about $5 billion a week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so you know maybe sort of a pause on the upward forces of the markets while we're in this this blackout period, um, but obviously that money will come back in once the blackout period's over. And hey, if companies start you know beating earnings estimates, maybe even more than folks were expecting, um, that could add additional upward fuel and, and maybe be some of the triggers for that potential run to the end of year we talked about earlier. Right. And again, I, I you know I you know. Again, you know, keeping in perspective, you know, the market could be anywhere between, you know, 4,500 and 4,650 by the end of the year, certainly possible. Anything outside of that, I would start really kind of discounting the possibilities of. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, you mentioned the, that the Fed's meeting next week, uh, we're going to hear from the Fed next week. Uh, you expect them to pretty much keep things as they are and for the market to interpret that as, okay, yeah, the Fed's probably done here. Um, may be true, may very well be true, but let me just, let me ask you this. Um, oil has made a big run in the past couple of months. Yep. Um, it was in the 60s, just in June, uh, as of the day we're speaking here, Lance, it's now over $90 a barrel. Yep. Um, also, you know, when we, we had, caution folks about this to expect it because of base effects uh, and just general stickiness, um, inflation is creeping back up right now, at least as measured by headline CPI, right? The August data came out at 3.7%. That's up from uh, 3.0 in June and 3.2 
uh, in July. So, you know, yes, the Fed did a good job of knocking it down from nine to three, but now it's creeping back up, right? Um, you know, especially with oil going up like the way that it has, could that be changing the game here a little bit? I mean, could this could that be really forcing the Fed to say, you know, no. as much as I want to declare victory, I I, I really can't with oil at, at these no. levels. Yeah, no. uh, oil doesn't uh, impact the Fed's policy making decision. Look, and this is there's there's a couple of reasons behind this. First of all, yeah, oil's got everybody's attention here short term, and that's fine and dandy. And oil look, oil ebbs and flows over time. So you know, it's oil prices are going to go up. They they had a big sell off in the summer. They got very oversold. So now you're getting a reflexive rally in the markets. And remember, what drives oil prices is commodity traders. So these are all just bets. Uh, oil tends to cool off historically as we move into winter. Um, if we get slower economic data coming out, that's going to pressure oil prices lower. Um, if the dollar keeps strengthening, that's going to weigh on oil prices. So, you know, we're probably close to the peak in oil prices near term. And so we'll see that cool off. But but putting that aside for a moment, the Fed doesn't care about oil prices. So first of all, let's talk about CPI and how we calculate it. Yes, a uh, big impact right now on what's happening with inflation, and you should expect this, is the year-over-year comparisons. It's always a mathematical base effect. Um, we've had we had very big numbers of inflation back in 2022. So when we got to 2023, we, as you and I were talking about that inflation, uh, sorry, uh, 2021 and 2022, uh, you and I were talking about in June and July, you know, that we'd seen the peak in inflation because of the mathematical base effects. That number was going to come down very sharply. But as with all economic data, you should never expect data to trend in just solely one direction. It bounces along the way. We've had a very big decline. We're nine to three. You should expect a bounce. It's the, it's the mathematical year-over-year comparisons. And then you're going to have another, then inflation is going to start to tail off as we get into next year. Now, oil prices in particular um, have a very small impact on overall inflation. It's about 3% of the inflation measure. And energy as a whole is 7% of inflation. That includes heating oil, oil for your car, gasoline, um, you know, uh, um, electricity costs, utility costs, those type of things. All the factors of energy that goes into the household uh, equation is about 7% of the index. Almost 40% of the index is housing and housing-related components. In other words, the homeowner's equivalent rent. That runs about a three to six month lag. Home prices are declining. There's still a huge impact of, of lower home prices coming in to the inflation calculation, which far outweigh any impact ultimately coming from, from energy prices. But more, most importantly, because energy prices and food prices are so volatile, and they do, they go up and they go down from one month to the next, the Federal Reserve excludes those from policymaking. If, they, if the Fed looked at oil prices as a function, and, and let's say they looked at headline CPI, they'd be changing monetary policy every month, and they can't do that. So they'd strip out these more volatile sectors and look at the core inflation, which that came in at 0.3. So multiply that by 12. That's basically 3.6% inflation. On a long-term basis, we're going to average that around 0.2% ultimately. So you're looking at 2.4% inflation on average. Yeah, you're getting a little bump every now and then. But you're going to start to average inflation back down towards 2% on the core reads. And that's and, and that's going to remain suppressed primarily because of what's happening with housing and rental rates and and, and what's going on, on on the big factors that actually influence core CPI. Okay. So you're basically saying um, you, you, you're not that worried about the, uh, the policy implications of uh, the rise in oil prices that we've seen over the past couple of months. Okay. 
oil being relatively volatile, uh, you expect that we're probably, you said, getting near a peak in prices, probably come back down again. Um, it's kind of a non-issue for the Fed right now because it's not even included in the core CPI that they're navigating their policy by. Um, so now I presume there's some level at which if oil got to or stayed above for a prolonged period of time, you might change your tune, but you don't see anything yet to make you worry about that. No, no, no. That, that's not what I said. I said the Fed doesn't, when you're talking about policymaking, the Fed doesn't include those points in the inflation metric, right? right. And they'll always strip that out because of volatility. But right. don't, don't be surprised if the Fed comes out and says, hey, you know, we are watching energy prices. We are watching what's going on because that's an impact to the economy. But those aren't positive impacts, right? So just think about historically what happens every, let's just, let's just say, that some of the people out there predicting 100 $120 barrel oil occurs again. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. So, oh, so oil yeah. goes to 120 and stays there for all of next year. Yeah, uh, for a whole year, right? So um, what, what would happen to the economy at that point? And, you know, what would happen with economic growth at that point? And, and see, these are the things that, you know, we often forget and, uh, you know, that these have severe impacts to the overall economy. Um, the subject of our, our newsletter last weekend was oil price inflation, interest rates, and what's the link? Um, and that was that chart of seasonality right there. But we go back and look at the, the market over time. So again, talking about inflation, what's the calculation of inflation? This is CPI broken down over the course of the last five months and the weights of each sector. And you can see housing makes up, housing and everything related to housing is, is a very, very big chunk of the actual housing cal uh, calculation. Energy isn't even weighted because it's included in transportation and housing. And again, that makes up about 7% of that total calculation. So again, energy as a function doesn't have a whole lot of, of impact on the overall inflation number. But here's oil prices versus core inflation going back to um, the, the 1960s. And let me pause that so I ended up. Now, what you'll notice is, and we've talked about this before, is that when you have big spikes in oil prices, they don't tend to, to stay around for uh, exceedingly long periods of time. So generally, when you have a big spike in oil, uh, you're going to have some type of, of economic event that occurs, and then oil prices are going to correct. And, and that's kind of just the history of oil prices as a function. Uh, core inflation doesn't really have a big correlation with oil prices over time. It, does, it, it has recently, there's been a, a pickup in the correlation recently because of all that money that we flooded into the system, um, you know, stimulus payments and everything else. We shut down the economy. We gave everybody, you know, money to spend. So they all went out and spent it. So that created a big surge in demand for all types of commodities. So the recent correlation of oil prices has certainly been, let me back up one here. This recent correlation in oil prices inflation is certainly evident, but that's not the history of oil prices and inflation, particularly going back to the turn of the century. There's not a huge correlation. And we can actually see that. Um, this was a chart by Michael Leibowitz last week in our daily market commentary. Um, this is crude versus five years and in, in five-year inflation expectations. And that's a fairly high correlation. But once you spit this out, and look at crude versus inflation, it, that correlation drops yeah. to about 32, uh, 32%. And what that says is, is that people expect, oh, well, energy prices are up. So I expect there to be a big correlation with inflation, but the reality is drastically different. And there's a very low correlation between, as I just showed you, there's a very low correlation 
um, between energy prices and inflation over time. All right, interesting. Um, boy, I'm just curious. Uh, you know, there's there's a whole lot more to this article, by the way. I just stopped there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, oil prices um, go up. I think people say, ah, oh, gosh, you know, oils and everything. Uh, therefore, it's going to be inflationary. You're saying the data doesn't necessarily show that very often. I'm just curious, d- does it does it act with a delay? I mean, oil isn't everything. And it so if everything. the price of oil goes up now, may- maybe there is a higher correlation, but maybe we don't see it until nine months down the road or 12 months down the road. I, I don't know. No. I'm just asking, do-, do you see that in the data at all? No, not really. Uh, you know, they're, they're you know, uh, again, you know, and this is a this is a better chart of oil prices over time. But, you know, you can see that every time there's a spike in, in, in energy prices, it creates some type of problem economically, either recession or some type of event. Yeah, it, it's almost like too high interest rates, right? It, it is. Well, but there's also one other component of this is if oil prices go up, I, I'm an energy company, right? I'm, I'm ExxonMobil. If oil prices go up, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to produce more oil, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want, I'm going to take advantage of that. And that's why, you know, back in, in 2008, we had everybody was worried about peak oil, oil price. And, 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 now, and this is always important to remember, energy companies do not set the price of oil. You and me buying stuff at the gas station does not set the price of oil. Oil is set by NYMEX. It's set by crude, by, by energy traders that are buying and selling options, right? So back in 2008, everybody was like, oh my God, we're running out of oil. And, and we were running up the price of oil like crazy. And then we discovered, you know, fracking. And this was the response by energy companies going, man, at, at you know, $130 a barrel, I can do stuff that previously was not economically feasible. You know, at, at $80 a barrel or at $50 a barrel or at $30, you know, when we're down at $30 a barrel, I can't drill offshore. It's too expensive to drill offshore um, at $30 a barrel. But at $80 a barrel, I can start drilling offshore again. At $100 a barrel, you bet your ass I'm building a new drill out in the middle of the Gulf somewhere. I don't care what's going on because I can extract that oil at an economically beneficial cost. So as soon as prices go up, energy companies are going to respond by drilling more oil. And that's what's ultimately gonna happen is that if, if energy prices do go, and look, and energy prices are just, again, you, you know, take a look at where we were last year, the Russia-Ukraine war, energy prices had a big decline. You're getting a bounce in energy prices, exactly what you should expect them to do. They just got really oversold. They're bouncing here a bit. And then you'll have your economic slowdown next year. And when you have a recession, energy prices decline. So, I mean, that's just, that's just the function of the way the world's gonna work. Yeah. I also just want to remind folks, too, that, Lance, you are based in Houston. So more than the average financial advisor, you are kind of closer to the pulse of the oil industry, given your location and and the folks that you interact with. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, Look, I want to I want to switch gears here a little bit. Um, So uh, earlier this week, uh, I interviewed Michael Pinto, um, who, you know, Lance, I think you know, I think you guys see the world very similarly uh, in, in most cases. Um, one point of difference, and it's really just a difference of timing. Uh, it's not It's not a difference of expectation or philosophy. I think it's just a, a difference of when certain events might happen um, that Michael highlighted that I think a lot of, of viewers have been talking about uh, has been his outlook for U.S. Treasuries, where 
right now he is is pretty much sitting in the very short end of the curve and saying i don't think it's time yet to go out on the the long duration side of us treasuries there will be a time when he's waiting to do that he has a model he's created that he's waiting to tell him that that it's that time now obviously you and your partner there michael Leibowitz, um have relatively recently said you know what, I, I think now is the time to start extending. And you talked about how you uh, have swapped the, the TLT part of your portfolio for actual long bonds themselves. And commensurate with that, have you been increasing the part of the portfolio that you've been shifting from short to long? Not yet. Um, so we still have uh, half of our bond portfolio fairly short in duration, um, but we did extend the longer end part of our, of our, so we run a bond barbell, right? So we've got different maturity ranges uh, across the board in terms of bonds. And right now there's, you know, there's no reason to shift out of that really short end because they're getting paid well on it at, you know, 4%, you know, yields or whatever. It's, it's um, to interrupt, but you, you said you're about half and half right now, short about half and half. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize that because I believe that is different from Michael. I think Michael is a hundred percent short right now. Yeah. So anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, and actually we're not even half and half. So it, we have 40% of our portfolio in bonds and they could, Okay, let me back up real quick. So our portfolio is a 60-40 allocation. So we have 60% equities, 40% bonds. Out of our 40% bond portfolio, we have 13% in long duration, right? Everything else is medium to short or cash, right? So we, we still hold a pretty big cash holding even on the, the, on the, the bond side of the portfolio. And then our equity portion is 60%. So uh, again, as we start to see interest rate, and look, interest rates have probably peaked where we are. We're probably not going to see substantially higher interest rates here. Sure, we could get to four and a half, but bad things are going to start happening once you get above four, four and a, above four and a half percent. Bad things will start happening economically. So we're probably either at or near the peak in interest rates. So we went ahead and made that shift uh, last week and by switching from uh, into an actual you know twenty year Treasury bond, locking in that rate. Uh, because at you know, you know four and a half percent, you know that's a big help to the portfolio return over time. But just I can throw four and a half percent in the portfolio, that's easy. Um, so so that part we did, and you know, but there's been a lot of talk lately about the return of the bond vigilantes and how you know the if, you know with inflation where it is and what the Fed's doing um, and where things are going that you know nobody's going to want to buy the Treasuries unless they get paid much higher rate, and there's just not a lot of support for that case. All right. Uh, if we're going to say why, Lance. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, why isn't it, Lance? <laughs> well, let me ask you a couple. First of all, uh, uh, today's article on our website is actually discussing this. But let me just ask you a couple of questions here, real quick. Um, we have thirty-two trillion in debt, right? So, what? And that's just in government debt. That doesn't count, you know, the the hundred and fifty percent of leverage that we have in households and corporations that are all based upon ultra low interest rates. So what happens if, if the world says, okay, I, I'm demanding a higher rate. If I'm going to loan you money, if I'm going to loan corporations money, if I'm going to loan households money, I'm going to demand a much higher rate. What happens economically? Yeah, well, this is what you and I have been talking about forever with the lag effect, right? Just less can get done. That, that's right. And and uh, and so eventually, if if less gets done, economic growth slows, and if economic growth slows, since interest rates are a function of inflation expectations, economic growth expectations, opportunity costs, um, then interest rates are going to come down to reflect that reality of what's happening economically and, and with inflation. 
So as, as the negative impact of higher rates weighs on the overall market, then interest rates will start to reflect that. Just We'll just go through it. So some quick analysis here. And this is just really, again, this, and if you want to take your time and read the article and, and, and look at the charts in more detail, it's on the website, goinvestmentadvice.com. It's just called Bond Vigilantes and the Waiting for Godot. Because, uh, so first of all, the term Bond Vigilantes was termed by Ed Yardini back in 1980. Um, Did Yardini coin it? I didn't know that. Yeah, back in 1980. And we've been waiting on the bond vigilantes to return since 1980, and they haven't. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting is, is that we now have, so what this chart shows you that I'm looking at, that you're looking at right now, is the 10-year interest rates versus um, the change in rates on an annual basis versus, you know, economic events over time. And every time that you have big changes in rates, you have either a recession or some type of financial event or crisis that then in turn makes interest rates go lower. This is by far the largest change in rates we've ever had in history, period. So if you don't think this is going to ultimately revolve into, and especially if you think rates are going to keep going up, if you don't think we're not going to have a financial event or recession, there's no evidence to support that going back at least to 1954. But let's go back even further. How about 1787? Not my chart. This <laughs> is this is bond, uh, uh, Bank of America. But since night since 1787, the bond market has never had a negative return three years in a row. If it does it this year, this will be the first time since 1787. The point though being, even in the 70s, where Everybody was, you know, this is what everybody refers back to is like the 70s were terrible for interest rates. The bond market cranked out positive returns almost every year, even during the 70s. And, and so if you're going to bet on an ongoing negative return in bonds after this year, that's a very, very tough bet to hold on to. Because, again, history going back to 1787 doesn't support bonds having negative returns more than two years in a row, much less three years in a row, much less four years in a row. So again, just history is really starting to weigh to weigh on your side. Right. Go back. I'm sorry. Go back. Yeah. Yes. Finish your point. I, I'm finished. I was moving. Okay. Uh, all right. So you know, basically, you were saying, look, uh, two years of declines in uh, Treasury bonds is extreme. Is rare. Three years of declines never happened before in this data series might happen this year but, right you're saying betting on a fourth highly 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 unlikely right you'll never say never as you said earlier but you know it's it's as close to as sure bet as one could probably get right um so let me just ask you though so okay so we're having this uh unprecedented third down year so far you know maybe the year ends with with lower higher bond prices and lower rates but maybe not right so what is causing this is is this basically just a reflection as you said earlier that this is the most aggressive rate hike period we've ever had yeah well and well, again you know interest rates where they are currently are reflecting three things they're reflecting wage growth they're reflecting uh inflation and their economic growth what's it to come in right now from the Atlanta Fed. Have you looked at the latest read? It was five. Yeah. Point, it was four point, uh, like five point two or five point three the other day. It's four point nine as the day we're talking. Okay, about. so four point nine. So you got four point nine percent economic growth. So just that math, right? If four point nine, uh, if you have four point nine percent economic growth, what should the interest rate be? Well, it should be somewhere 
should be somewhere around 4.9, right? So we're 4.3-ish. Uh, that's about where it should be. That's that's So where's inflation? Inflation's 3.7 on the latest read. And you're at 4.3 on 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 GDP on uh, interest rates and and 4.9 on GDP. So interest rates are just reflecting where you are in terms of economic growth and inflation. Um, also, it reflects where the Fed is. The Fed's currently at five percent. So you know the the ten year rate is really just reflecting all these economic and, and financial variables. And unfortunately, whenever the Fed has had rates this high previously. Uh, outcomes have not been great for either the stock market or for the economy. And, and so this is, and, and but again, uh, and when we go back and talk about bond vigilantes for a second, let's remember one thing is that the statement, the and, and you know, to Ed Yardini's point about the bond vigilantes are now saddling back up, this, uh, this is all based upon the premise that all else is equal. And I want you to, to take that home and think about it. If all else is equal, then Ed Yardini is probably right about the bond vigilante saddling back up or Jeff Gunlack or whoever, whoever else is saying this. And, and what their arguments are is that this is that in the current environment that bond buyers are going to demand a higher rate for treasury bonds to compensate for higher rates of inflation and higher rates of economic growth and, and higher wages, right? So that's, there's a very close correlation to that. And they're absolutely right about that story. So if all else is equal, if I'm the, if I'm the, the guy out here buying bonds and the, the government comes to me and says, Lance, I'm gonna offer you a 10-year treasury at 2%, I'm like, why? Inflation is four. So if inflation is four, why would I take two on a 10-year treasury when I've got to accommodate for 4% inflation? I'm losing money. So the so as a bond buyer, I'm going to say, hey, you got to step up the rate in order for me to buy it. So all else equal, that's the way the market should work. The, the mark, but we're not in an all else is equal environment anymore because as soon as interest rates get to the point that it starts damaging the economy, or starts creating financial scenarios, central banks globally have been stepping in to be the sole bond buyer of bonds. So we're not in an all else is equal environment. We're in an environment where in the event, the market doesn't show up to buy bonds and keep rates suppressed. Because again, going back to our previous statement, which is the economy can't withstand higher rates because of all the leverage, 32 trillion in, in government debt, not to mention corporates and households, so as soon as you start to break either the financial market or the economy, which will happen, the central banks are going to step in. Don't believe me? Let's just go back to March for a second. Adam, what happened in March in particular of this year? We had a lot of instability in the banking system. Right. And what did the Fed do? It stepped in and created a new funding facility, the BFTP. Exactly. And, and so can you imagine... If and that was and, and why did we have this problem was because interest rates went up it suppressed the collateral values of the banks we had banks fail because they didn't have these weren't bad banks these weren't banks that were doing subprime mortgages or bad loans they were holding treasuries it's just a function of their because we do fractional reserve banking the value of their good quality collateral fell because the Fed was hiking interest rates created a collateral problem for the banks. And they had to get bailed out. And so the Federal Reserve stepped in. Can you imagine what would happen to, to not just regional banks, but to JP Morgan, to Bank of America, to Wells Fargo, to our systemically important banks, if interest rates were at five or six or seven percent in terms of their collateral? 
we would be right back in the midst of a 2008 financial crisis and the federal government would be stepping in to buy bonds to suppress rates in order to get that, that situation resolved very quickly. So all else is not equal. And when we talk about the, the, so the level of debt in particular, um, we're at 32 trillion, approaching 33 trillion right now. The CBO just projected uh, and, and just did their projections through 2050 um, on the amount of debt to GDP. So if we work that number, we're talking about roughly 140 trillion in debt by 2050. The Federal Reserve will have to monetize roughly 30% of that debt. So you're talking about the Federal Reserve's balance sheet between now and 2050 going from you know, eight, $8 trillion to roughly $40 trillion in order to monetize enough debt to keep interest rates at levels that are systemically functional. And, and so when you start talking about bond vigilanteism, it sounds great theory. It's just we don't have a normally operating functioning you know, bond market, much less do we have a, a normal functioning stock market. But we certainly don't have it in the bond market and aren't going to have it because central banks are standing ready, not just the Fed, it's the ECB, it's the BOJ, it's it's the, the Bank of well, China, all yeah, stepping into my bonds. And, and, and nobody's done this more than the BOJ. Um, so you're, you're basically- well, Wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay, okay. away my punchline. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, but no, you, you, you stole my thunder because, again, if you want to take a look at, you know, a microcosm of where we're headed- um, since 1995, Japan's jet debt to GDP ratio has gone from basically 65% to uh, over 220% of debt to GDP. In the U.S., we're about 120-ish right now. And look at what's happened with economic growth and interest rates over that time. Economic growth has slowed. Interest rates have slowed. Interest rates are near zero. And they've been that way for a long time. They're, the bond vigilantes never showed up in Japan. And if bond vigilantes were going to show up anywhere, it should have been in Japan. And the reason that they didn't show up is because the Bank of Japan now owns roughly 80% of the bond market, the stock market, and the ETF market. And so that's how they keep rates suppressed and try to create some rate of economic growth. But as you can see, uh, Japan's plagued by recessions about every three to four years. And it's just they have these little spurts of growth. And then the impact of debt and economic realities show up and you have another recession again. But you know, importantly, going back over time, interest rates are relative around the world. You can't have one country with, with one set of rates and another country with another set of rates. And Japan and the US have a lot of similarities, aging demographics, large import-export economy, high debt to GDP ratios, high dependency on welfare programs, low savings rates, structural shifts in employment. So the, the outcome ultimately for interest rates is not one of a higher interest rate environment. It's one of a much lower interest rate environment and one where central banks are going to be maintaining those low interest rates to keep the economy on life support. Now I'm done. Go. <laughs> OK. Yeah. No. So great analysis um, and lots of questions. But let me get to the the main one here and keep that chart up for one second. Oh, sorry. I <laughs> think you were going to go get rid of it while I was talking. I was too fast. I was too fast. Um, so uh, big, big picture question. Um, is the U.S. Japanifying? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because we can look at, there's a uh, delta between the U.S. data uh, there and the the Japanese data chair there. Uh, U.S. data is higher, but the trajectory in, in both cases is down. And if you look at, you know, where we are, uh, you know, let's say where we were in the mid 20 teens, you know, that's where Japan was in the nineties. Right. Right. And so we're just heading on that, that, that trajectory. So, so you believe that because of the debt situation, um, more and more, the fed is going to have to intervene and it will eventually be buying more and more and more of the debt issuance of our nation, the same way it's happened in Japan. Yeah. Well, and the same way it's happening in Europe, same way it's happening, you know, everywhere else. And, yeah, that's not going to change because, again, what central banks can't afford to do. And again, you and I have talked about this before. What is it that politics and let's remember, central banks are a function of, of who? The politicians. What is it that the politicians don't want to do? And again, we're about to come up on this whole, uh, you know, we're about to have a government shutdown here in October. So we're about to have the Republicans come out. I'll beat their chest how they're going to hold everybody hostage to get cuts in spending and the separate Ukraine spending out from, you know, other spending, and they're going to have a lot of chest feeding. And at the last minute, they'll all cave and, and pass a continuing resolution to continue spending with an 8% increase. Because at the end of the day, what no politician wants is a, a poor, weak economy because they won't get elected and they know this. Right. So, you know, they will, they will not pursue austerity willingly. It's the exactly. And so until and, and again, you say, well, that's just going to happen any time now. You know, one one important part about this chart uh, between Japan and the U.S. is remember that Japan is running a 30 year head start on the U.S. So where our interest rates are now or where the, the Japan's interest rates were previously and they're. 30 years ahead of us on where rates will ultimately wind up. And again, you know, we're talking about a period where interest rates are going to be stuck near zero because you can't afford higher rates. Because when rates go up, you start impacting debt across the board. And again, this goes back to basic economic growth. Where does that economic growth come from? It comes from wages. If wages aren't growing fast enough to keep up with the economy, which they're not, then people have to, to delve into credit card debt to sustain their standard of living. This is why credit card, it takes roughly about $8,000 a year in additional credit card debt just to supplement the incomes of individuals to maintain their living standard. So again, interest rates go up. I can't take on more credit card debt. The economy slows down. I have a recession. If interest rates go up, you impair the banks. There, there's, there is no good outcome for higher rates where the Federal Reserve is not required to step in and central banks and the governments to step in to suppress interest rates back to low levels. So, you know, the, the bond vigilantes are going to get, you know, basically wrangled by the sheriffs eventually. Well, OK, and that's where I was going to go because you titled your your article there, Bond Vigilantes and the Town Sheriff, right, right. with the central bank being the town sheriff here. And, and let me just recap because I want to make an important point here um, in the 80s. The bond vigilantes had a lot more power uh, to push the bond market around, right? Now, because the system is so heavily indebted, uh, the economy at large can't support interest rates above a certain threshold. And that's something the central bank knows well. And so it has to intervene 
in order to keep the economy limping along, chugging along, whatever analogy you want to use, it's got to come in and get interest rates down when they get above a certain level. Right now, it, it has raised them to high, relatively high levels recently. And it's doing that almost like the way that you use chemotherapy in a patient, right? right. Um, you know, you're, you're putting a poison in the body, but your hope is you're going to kill the cancer first, and then you can then you can bring the patient back to health. That's what the Federal Reserve's trying to do right now. But to your point, you're saying it's going to have to bring those things down. That's what you're counting on is the town sheriff coming in to do that. So that's what's different this time, right? That's what's different from the early 80s. Now, you said, look, you know, we're seeing this happen worldwide. Japan is giving us, you know, a decades ahead view of where we're going to end up, right? So, you know, we, we had the chapter where the market ran more freely. We now have the the, the era of, of big central bank intervention. But that has an end date too, Lance, right? You can only yeah. get to the point where the central bank, you know, owns everything, right? <laughs> where you don't really have functioning markets anymore. And you're basically just printing fresh currency to meet all these nominal debt payments. And, and basically you've killed your currency and, and your economy goes moribund. So there will be a post-central bank intervention era, right? We have no idea when that's going to arrive. But I just want to say this playbook that's being run cannot be run forever, Correct. Well, you, you, yes, that would make completely logical sense. And 30 years later, Japan's still doing it. Uh, you know, back in 2020, we were, were writing articles talking about Japan being, you know, a, a fly in search of a windshield. And just at any point, you know, Japan was going to implode, couldn't sustain their debt to GDP, you know, long term. 23 years later, that fly is still searching for that windshield. So, you know, how long, you know, how long can it take? Is it 30 years? Is it 50 years? We, we may not be alive when this era ends, but, yeah, but yeah. I, end. I feel sorry for whoever it is. It's going to be terrible for, for yeah. the Gen Zers, I guess, or maybe whoever, you know, what comes after Z? I, you know, the Gen 1s? No, it's Alpha, if you can believe it. They're going to A. Okay, so Gen Alpha, maybe it's their problem, but it's not going to be, you know, you know the, the era of financial capitalism is is coming to a drastic end and it's unfortunate because it's what made uh, America the, the wealthiest economy in the world and the history of the world by far um you know we're destroying that as fast as we can but you know and, and I feel sorry for those that are coming down the road because they just won't have the opportunities because of the debt it, it's very sad I'm going to try to find uh this this comic but there's a like a New Yorker comic out there that that shows this man in like a tattered suit right it's just it's rags at this point and he's sitting around a campfire with these young children and he says yes we destroyed the world but for a brief moment boy did we create a lot of shareholder value yeah <laughs> it's unfortunate but yes that's that's the that's the case uh super sad um all right well look um uh Real quickly, you mentioned the the potential of a government shutdown coming. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want to note there there's an article that recently came out um, about uh, I think it was by Goldman saying, hey, there there's sort of three things that it's got them looking at to say th th these are likely going to be drags on on uh, GDP in Q4. Yep. And let me just list them because we'll probably come back to talk about them in future videos. Um, one we've already talked a lot about, uh, it's the resumption of student loan payments. They're projecting that's going to subtract at least 0.5% uh, and, and likely much more, they say, from uh, quarterly annualized GDP growth in Q4. So, you know, we've been talking about keeping an eye on that impact. Um, secondly, they said that 
government looks more than likely to, to shut down for some temporary period of time as all those histrionics go on that you talk about, Lance. They say that's going to impact growth by about 0.2%. Uh, and then they say, uh, and I haven't been keeping enough of a close eye on this, I guess, um, that reduced auto production from a potential uh, United Auto Workers strike uh, could reduce annualized growth by 0.1% uh, of GDP for each week it lasts here. So we got to keep our eye on these three things because these could be things that, that you know, uh, way more heavily on growth than, than we currently have right now. Well, and I'd also expect that just from the function of the lag effect of, of interest rates and inflationary pressures, et cetera, that, you know, the, the bump we've seen in GDP growth in the first half of this year because of the Inflation Reduction Act, we're probably getting towards the tail end of that. So, you know, seeing some weaker economic data in Q4, um, and if not in Q4, Q1, Q2 of next year, won't be surprising at all because, again, there's not another big spending package coming behind the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which didn't really reduce inflation, but actually sustained it a bit. But, you know, that's that's going to fade out as we get into early part of next year. So I think we're going to start to see weaker economic data uh, coming in as we get further into the year. You know, the one thing to really watch, and to your point about student loan payments, is watch holiday spending, because that's where I think you're going to see the, that really showing up is as that student loan payment resumes, how much does that really impact retail spending, which is 40%-ish of the PCE number, which is roughly 70%-ish of the GDP calculation. So I, it, it could be more than half a percent impact uh, as Goldman notes. Okay. Well, you know, folks, we'll keep in a close eye on this and we'll be reporting on this week after week going forward. So we'll let you know how the numbers are, are floating out there. Um, a couple of quick things I just wanted to note. Um, one is uh, money market inflows uh, continue to hit new highs um, and uh, banks are continuing uh, to tap the the BFTP program, right? That that rescue uh, program for, uh, for banks. Um, so... Uh, I, I, it's, you know, I, I think we're, we're still seeing here that the banking crisis is not resolved here, right? You know, this, this BTFP is supposed to be, you know, some bit of a scarlet letter, you know, for a bank to tap, but it's not keeping them from doing that. Um, and, you know, more and more, it looks like, you know, capital is still fleeing the banks, understandably, right? While there's still such a, a, a big arbitrage between where you're, the lesser amount your bank is willing to pay you on your savings versus what you can get simply by making a mouse click or two in a money market fund or, or, or just buying uh, T-bills directly. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. And then and look, and, and the reason that's the case is, is rates haven't come down yet. So, you know, uh, that that problem is not going to alleviate until we start to see either the Fed cutting rates or um, interest rates come down on their own, which would be in relation to an economic slowdown. Okay. Um, and I, I now want to get to your your trades, Lance, that you made for the week. But real quick, I, I do want to mention one bit of data. Um, and uh, this one is actually maybe on the positive, you know, surprisingly positive side, but Freight Waves, which was a, it's a trucking industry um, association that, that you know, uh, tracks all the data from, from uh, the shipping and trucking industry, um, has said that uh, increasing number of truckload carriers are saying that they think the bottom of the cycle uh, has likely occurred. Um, they're saying it's, it's you're probably not going to see a lot of improvement 
until at least sometime, you know, substantially into 2024. But that kind of the hemorrhaging of that sector seems to be ending here. So if true, you know, that's, you know, we, we, we've been talking a lot about how a lot of these shipping and distribution companies, you know, they're the they're the circulatory system of the economy of, of real things getting from point A to point B. And the numbers there have been pretty dismal for the past year and a half. Um, to hear that things may actually be stabilizing there, well, that's that's maybe an early indicator that, you know, there there is there is maybe some more recovery in the story than than we've been uh, estimating so far. But I don't know. We'll keep an eye on it. This is the first time I've heard something positive, you know, <laughs> out of this industry in a good while. Well, and again, you also remember that we had such an ab abnormal increase in that activity because five trillion in stimulus. We shut down the economy. Everybody sitting at home ordering stuff online. Um, you know, going to Home Depot and Lowe's to buy, you know, that yeah, stuff. They couldn't unload the, the ships fast enough. Yeah, exactly. So we had this, you know, I, I was reading articles, you know, back then where they were willing to pay truckers $600,000 to, you know, truck because they couldn't find anybody uh, to do that. So really what's happening, you always have to keep economic data kind of in check, is that a lot of the stuff that happened uh, in 2021 and 2022 is just returning to normal. Um, if you take a look at the stock market going back to 2009 is a good example. We had such a massive increase in the stock market because of all that stimulus that while 2022, that that, that correction was, it was like, oh, it's a bear market and the world's coming to an end. All we did was return back to the bullish trend line that we had from 2009. We just worked off all that monetary excess. And so a lot of this that we're seeing is just a return to normalcy. But because it was so good there, now it looks terrible, right? So. You know, it just may mean that we're getting back to normal and we don't see that type of really we're getting back to that 2% growth trend in the economy, maybe a little bit less. And that'll be the new normal. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we've talked in, in the past, too, about kind of the bullwhip effect. Right. And that's pretty much what the pandemic was on steroids. Right. I mean, it yeah. just it wang things around to re re remarkable extremes and to well, a certain Hopefully we learned our lessons about the stupidity of MMT. So now that we've gotten that out of our system, yeah. hopefully we won't do that again. Ho hopefully. And and I said, we get your trades, but now that you mentioned that, I'll mention this really quickly. Um, if, if folks haven't yet, and if you're interested in the real estate market, um, really recommend that you watch the video that we released earlier this week with housing analyst Melody Wright. Um, she uh, has uh worked in the mortgage lending industry her whole life she very much remembers um the damage caused during uh you know the 2007 housing bubble bursting um she very much remembers just the completely ill-advised you know decisions that were made back then to sort of extend and pretend and thought we'd never ever do that again that that the industry clearly learned its lesson and she's been increasingly discomfited by kind of hearing and seeing very similar echoes now of of bad decisions, bad practices, magical thinking, extend and pretend, all that type of stuff that she saw back then. Uh, she's beginning to see that a lot now in the housing market. Um, she she talks a lot about it in the uh, the interview that, that I did with her. Um, but one of the things that's that's so interesting about her current analysis is, you know, she does a lot of data crunching. I mean, she, that's what she does for a living, but she also has just, you know, gotten in the car and driven to a number of the, you know, recently most active uh, real estate markets across America, the Austins, the Phoenixes, the Las Vegases, the Nashvilles, the Miamis. 
uh, and just like literally driven around and done a lot of boots on the ground investigation. And she's found that uh, there is uh, certainly this, this, the, the industry itself is suffering from a lot of bad data or, or just incomplete data. And um, one of the things that she's finding by driving around is that there's an awful lot of, of speculative, you know, spec building inventory uh, that is um, uh, been built, but it's being held from being on the market. Um, and so it's not appearing in, in MLS listings, obviously. And then she's finding other areas where there's a lot of uh, properties that are being available for sale, oftentimes in these kind of like multi-dwelling communities that are being kept from MLS. So basically her story is, is, you know, what you see on the ground is not matching the data that the industry itself yeah. is using. And she's ringing a bell similar to the one that, that um, Amy Nixon is ringing kind of with the Airbnb market is there is a lot of inventory that looks increasingly likely uh, that it's going to be kind of flooding onto the market at some point over the next couple of years. And so everybody who is sort of living and breathing by the like, oh, we have this housing inventory shortage, housing prices can't possibly come down because we don't have enough units. Uh, I would, if you believe that at all, you definitely should watch that video with Melody. Yeah. So I wrote an article probably about a year and a half or so ago talking about how there, there never is, there never is an inventory shortage. And that's a myth of the market because it's all a function of price. And not, not that, unlike in many ways, the oil. Business. Exactly. And so when prices hit a point to where, you know, I've either, and this works in two ways, right? So if, if home prices are going up, that's going to drag more inventory to the market because I may be sitting on my house going, I'm not really, well, I'll tell you, I, I did it right back in July of, of, of last year, you know, prices were going up and I'm like, I'll never see this value on my house. I love my house. I didn't want to sell it. I mean, we built it. It was our custom home. We built it from scratch. Me and my wife, we loved everything about it. It was a beautiful house, but the, the prices were so ridiculous. We go, we can't afford not to sell this. And so we sold it. And, and the same thing comes, comes down too. And, and when prices are coming down, there's a point to where people that are sitting on equity in their home and they have equity in their home, when they start to see that last, and remember for most people, when you look at net worth, a big chunk of their net worth is the equity in their home. And when that equity in their home starts to erode, they'll sell it and they'll, they'll do something else. And so it works in both manners, but there's never an inventory shortage. At a certain price point, inventory will flood the market. And that's either has to do with interest rates or price or whatever it is, but you'll get a big uptick in interest rates. Um, and, and so, and it's interesting right now because, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of young people and they're like, well, it's just not fair what, what homes cost these days. And I go, hey, I, I get it. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, the very people trying to sell you the house that's creating the problem. And there's no better example of that this week. Now, you know, Fannie Mae recently came out with a 3% down mortgage. Stop doing that. If you want home prices to normalize, quit letting people into a house for 3% down. Make them have some skin in the game, 20% down. Home prices will come back down to where they're supposed to be. But now Zillow and Rocket Mortgage are eating 2% of that down payment. So now you can get to a house with 1%. Last time we saw that stuff, <laughs> so you don't bleep me out again, <laughs> well, it was back in 2006, 2007. So yeah, if you want home prices to, to, to come down and get, re and get affordable, Stop doing stuff that distorts the price of more of, of mortgages, right? And 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 you know start and and look, you didn't have housing price bubbles 
back in the 80s and the 90s because you had to put 20% down. You couldn't split your mortgage between two mortgages to avoid PMI. We didn't have all these adjustable rate funky mortgages. You know, just get back to, to you know, you put 20% down on a house, housing prices will align with inflation and you'll be able to afford down a home. Oh, well, hallelujah, brother. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right there behind you on that. Um, it's funny when when Zillow, I think I was, I don't remember who I was interviewing the day that that Zillow announcement came out. It might've been Stephanie Pomboy. And I said to her, um, uh, all right, I'm calling it right now. Uh, T minus 12 months when we start seeing the headlines that say Zillow exits disastrous 1%, you know, more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're going to have the smart money was taking the under on that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, Real quick, just because you mentioned it, uh, you caught yourself and you said stuff. Um, (laughs) uh, I have bleeped out some of your more colorful language recently. And I've had a couple of people in the comments say, come on, we're all adults here. You know, what are you doing? And just to be super clear, it's not the language. Uh, I, I I would love to let you be yourself, Lance, as much as possible. The reason why we're bleeping it out, folks, just so you understand the business behind all this, is um, I don't care about it. We're all adults here. YouTube cares about it. And so, you know, in terms of getting these videos watched and shared, uh, if there's stuff in there that the algo doesn't like, it will basically penalize uh, the videos. In certain cases, it can give you strikes or even deplatform you. That's why we're doing it. All I got to say is, is that in Texas, bull poop is a real word. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sure it is. That is not profanity. That is just the reality of where we live. So when I call something what it is, that's what it is. Anyway, (laughs) Anyway. you'll never hear me drop the F-bomb, but you'll hear me say the best word a lot. So, yeah. Uh, well, anyways, folks, just letting you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, it's not my morality uh, being layered on Lance. It's really more the algos. Um, all right. Well, Lance, trades. Yes. So what, if any, have you made over the past week? Uh, we're, we're really just kind of working on rebalancing the portfolio. Um, again, we're expecting this kind of October, November, December rally, wherever it starts, it'll start. It could be November. It could be October. It could be early December. So we're just basically realigning our portfolio, trying to, to, to benchmark, get closer to our benchmark weighting. Um, and so this week we sold Coke. We bought Coke, uh, Coca-Cola Enterprises, uh, Co- sorry, Coca-Cola Company uh, previously. Um, kind of we were looking at, uh, we talked about earlier, I think in June or July, about sector and staples were really old. And so we had, had did, the, did the fundamental work and we, we settled on buying Coke in the portfolio for basically kind of rotation of the staples. Um, it didn't work. And so we sold that and we rotated that those shares into Apple and to Procter & Gamble, which we also own. So what we're trying to do is decrease the number of holdings in our portfolio and increase the weights. Um, so our goal, we were at 26 holdings. Our goal is to get down to 20. And so over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be making some more consolidated movements in the portfolio. Okay, great. Um, all right. Well, look, in wrapping up here, folks, um, I just wanted to to end by opining on something that you and I talked about, Lance, after we uh, we, we finished recording last week, um, which is, uh, and if you're a fan of Wealthion, hopefully I'd, I'd love to get your folks' opinion on this. But I've had several people on this channel, um, se- several of the guests that I've interviewed, uh, make similar comments, which I just wanted to share with folks because I thought it was so interesting. So I, I've been in digital media most of my career here. Um, and I've seen, you know, the evolution from the start of the internet to more and more, you know, media getting digitized and coming online, new formats happening online. And, and 
you know, I would say sort of the general migration of, of audiences from traditional media sources into digital ones, for better or worse, you know, there's there's lots of pros, lots of cons. Um, but in the case of financial media, you know, a big reason why I started Wealthy on uh, was because I, I didn't feel that people were being terribly well served uh, in the standard uh, mass financial media. And if you're watching this video, you're, you're, you're probably, it's probably resonating with at least a good deal of you is you're not getting what I like to call kind of financially nutritious enough information through a lot of the soundbite or advertiser advertorial, you know, that gets pushed on, um, you know, a lot of the, the viewers of traditional financial media. And so you're coming online trying to self-educate and, and find information that's at least goes deeper, gives you more than just a soundbite, lets you really explore, you know, all sides of an issue. Uh, but in many ways, I think maybe, you know, a lot more um, agnostic, um, a, a lot more unbiased, you know, whatever that, 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 that's my, that's my bias for having started this channel. And obviously it's, it's collected a number of people who, you know, I, I guess it's working for, which is great. So that's on the audience side. Um, but what's interesting is on the expert side, I've talked to some experts recently who have basically told me that they are pretty much done uh, going on a lot of these traditional financial media uh, sources, especially TV, like, like, cable or, or network, you know, financial TV, um, they've said, look, you know, I've done it for a number of years. I've noticed I get less and less uh, bump to my business from it. Uh, I don't get to explain myself fully. Um, it's kind of like a lot of hassle and I get very little return for it. And I'm really just only now focusing on the platforms that, you know, really let me get me idea, get me my ideas fully out there where I can fully express uh, my, my thinking and my analysis and that drive my business. And I just found it so interesting that, you know, in the course of, I don't know, you know, seven days, I've had uh, unprompted uh, several experts basically say, you know, hey, thanks for letting me come on Wealthy. And in fact, I'd like to do more with you because platforms like yours are really where, you know, I, I see the true value. And so it's kind of interesting. And I'm just sharing this as a, a student of, of media is, you know, we're seeing this kind of interesting overlap now where we're more of the audience, and more of the experts are coming more onto platforms like this because it works more for them. Now, honestly, I'm I'm not an unbiased party, you know, in in this this hunt here uh, because I, I have this channel. But folks, if you're watching and you have any feedback on that, positive, negative, or just personal anecdotes to share, please let me know in the comment section. I'd really like to know. And, and Lance, I don't want to speak for you, but when we were chatting, I got the impression that you've more or less come to similar conclusions yourself as an yeah. expert out there. Yeah, no, I used to do a, a, a tremendous amount of media. I only do the only the only media I do now is I have a kind of a, a regular spot that I do on Fox Business with Charles Payne. But um, outside of that, I do you. I have my own podcast that we run every day um, and just a, a couple of others that, you know, people I really respect that I'll do stuff with. But outside of that, I've pretty much cut out doing most of the media. And even while I enjoy doing Fox Business and it's 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 you know, it's a nice thing, you know, that it does nothing really. I, I don't get any traction to my website. I don't get any traction to my blogs, uh, any, any of that from, from national media. So again, I, I agree with some of the other commenters that have said that is that there's not a whole lot of benefit to doing that. Um, you know, I'll go speak at conferences. I'll go where I can, you know, you know, have a full discussion, promote, you know, our blogs, promote our newsletter, which are all free, by the way, we don't charge for that stuff. 
Um, but that's what ultimately gives, you know, our business the ability to grow, which is what keeps me coming back here to do this. So there you go. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, in, interesting because you, you mentioned uh, Charles Payne, uh, who's a really good guy. Um, it, just to sort of folks give you a little window into kind of the arc of, of my journey in digital media. So uh, right out of getting my MBA from Stanford, uh, I was in my late 20s. Um, I uh, ended up at uh, Yahoo Finance. I was running uh, marketing for Yahoo Finance. And back then, Yahoo Finance was starting, I think, one of the first uh, online financial shows, basically. And um, it was a show called uh, Finance Vision, if I can remember. I think it was Yahoo Finance Vision, if I remember correctly. And Charles Payne was one of these, like, new talents. I, I don't think, I, I, you know, if it wasn't his first job, it was a very early job in his financial journalism career. And it's been great to see, uh, okay. you know, what's happened with him over time. Finance Vision didn't last for very long. Um, it was replaced by a few years later by another similar um, financial media show that, that Yahoo was doing called uh, Yahoo Finance Tech Ticker. And it was chaired by um, Henry Blodgett. Yep. And, and then Henry, I did, that, I, I did that with Henry. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you remember doing that with Henry, and then Henry went on to found Business Insider, right? Which became a really, you know, popular uh, online financial media. Yeah. Site. Of course, you uh, also have to remember though that he got banned from the industry because of his calls during 1999, 2000. He got banned from the financial industry, which is why he went to start Business Insider. Exactly. And uh, my college, sorry, my my business school roommate actually was working for Henry at that time when that all went down. Uh, so it was crazy. Nice guy. Nice, nice guy, by the way. Very uh, nice guy. Very smart guy. Um, yeah. Only, you know, nice things to say about him. I, I, I don't know a ton about exactly what went down. Uh, for those trades, but I have heard him him address all questions very openly and honestly. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it it, it look it, it he you know unfortunately, and this always happens, you know, in the in the financial industry is that and in 1999 was really no exception to 2007, you know, even early 2008, you know, he was you know he was an analyst for Wall Street and everybody was out pumping. Every stock out there, right? I mean, whether it's SDLI or JDC, all these stocks are going to the moon. Because as I've showed you before, you know, when when Wall Street, you know, looks at what's important to them, the retail guy is at the very bottom of the list. This is about investment banking. This is about relationships with these big companies so they can make revenue. And he was just doing his job as an analyst. But, you know, when everything fell apart, the SEC starts looking for, you know, who, who's the guy that we're going to put a noose around? And, and Henry Blodgett was one of the rising stars of the industry at that time. And, you know, there was 50 other guys right behind him doing exactly the same thing. Unfortunately, he just, you know, he got the, he got the ax. Yeah. And um, now that I'm kind of remembering, you know, I think one of the things that, that got him right with evidence was in an email or two mm-hmm. internal, he had written something like, you know, I have no idea how this company is worth as much as it is. Like this is bananas, right? Of course it was bananas and it was in an unprecedented time where valuations got stretched to a point where they had never gotten to, especially for companies that weren't making any profits nor might not make any profits. Right. And so they sort of held that up as like, how could you be recommending a stock publicly when you were saying internally, like, I just don't understand all this stuff. Right. But as you said, Everybody was doing it at the time. It, it, it was. And, and look, and if you didn't do it, you were out of a job. There were plenty of emails back back in 1999, 2000, where 
analysts would come out and, and, and make recommendations under basically the threat of losing their job. In fact, there was one analyst, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he, he was a big guy back, back in the late 90s. He came out and started saying, these stocks, he told the truth. These stocks are overvalued. You should own them. The guy got death threats from investors. Literally, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, okay. I, you just shut the hell up. I mean, literally people were threatened to kill this guy because he was speaking the truth about what was going on in the markets. Nobody wanted to hear this. Nobody wanted to hear the truth. They just wanted the bubble to last forever. But, you know, we see this every time. And then, of course, as is always the case, the SEC promotes and supports this stuff until it blows up. And then they come in and they, you know, they come in like the the, the cowboy with a white hat. And we're going to, you know, we're the sheriff. We're going to clean up the town now. And it's like, well, great. You know, you missed Enron. You missed WorldCom. You missed Lucent. You missed, you know, Global Crossing. You missed the financial crisis. Good job, fellas. You right, know, right. it's like, you know, what's they need their headline. They need to find their yeah. 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 Um, all right. So all now right. you got me on a whole rampage here. So, no, no. It's just super interesting to go back through that history there. Right. Um, and, it, and it's instructive because, you know, like in AI right now, we're, we're back in a, in a mania in AI, at least, right? So you get, you get, to, you get to keep that uh, context in mind, that perspective in mind. Um, so, last point on this, and then we'll end up, folks. But um, so, uh, platforms like this, you know, I think are are hopefully, you know, sort of part of the future of, of where things are headed in media. Um, you know, good for us. We'll pat ourselves on the back and, and have a little humble brag moment here. But but more important, um, you know, we're continuing to always say, look, well, how do we make this better, right? How do we better serve the needs of our viewers? And I just want to put an idea out there, um, Lance, I hope it's okay with you because we were kind of spitballing <laughs> this a little bit last time, is... Um, you know, I've, I've long said, look, there's there's only so much commentary that we can create in a given week on one channel here at Wealthion, right? So Wealthion is is mostly a macro channel, right? It's mostly a, hey, here are the trends that are most likely to impact the economy and the markets going forward, right? Um, we try to give as much market commentary as we can, and, and Lance, the main vehicle for that is these Saturday weekly market recaps that you and I do. Uh, but there's only so much that we can pack into, a, you know, an hour and a half ish or so. Um, and there's a lot that goes on every day in the markets that we, you know, folks who are really intently interested in the markets, you know, uh, would love for us to dig into. We just don't have the time and we we literally don't have the space in a given week since we're already doing five to six videos a week on this channel to do. So one of the ideas that we're kicking around at this point in time is is creating a new channel, a markets channel, right? Where there'd be lots of other commentary in there, you know, okay, what did the market do to, instead of what did the market do this week and why did it matter? You know, what are the markets likely to do today? Okay, what do the markets do today? What were the big, you know, action driving headlines? What are the implications of them? Hey, on a weekly basis, which companies look, you know, most undervalued? What, what are kind of the best bets here that we should be looking at? Oh, what what news just came out today? Or what did the Fed say today that's most likely to impact markets going forward? I mean, there, there basically is a zillion different other uh, topics that we could be talking about related more to just market action. And look, not everybody is super interested in the markets, and so they don't have to watch that channel. But for those that are, we could be serving them much more fair than we're able to on the existing wealthy on channels. So Lance, I'll let you give your two cents in just a second, but folks, if this is something that might be of interest to you, or if there's other types of, of uh, information, insights, et cetera, you'd like to see brought to you by wealthy on in some shape or form on this channel, on a new one we create, let us know in the comments section below. 
will definitely be listening to this. But because Lance and I are beginning to kind of ideate on what this could look like, I just wanted to put up a trial balloon here amongst you, the audience, that we could start getting your input. Lance, anything you want to say to that? No, no I, I think it'd be interesting. You know, again, you know, the problem is, as, as you said earlier, is that, you know, CNBC is great. Problem is, is that you get a bunch of paid advertising. Most of the people you hear on CNBC are, are paying to be there or they're a big sponsor. You know, it's a big mutual fund company, whatever it is, it buys ads and those type of things. So you don't always get kind of the real kind of unbiased truth. So I think a channel where- No matter what happens, it's always a great time to buy stocks because they're getting paid to say that, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, could you imagine a channel where you had a technical analyst that was on there saying, hey, you know, we're really overbought here and probably over the next week or so, we're going to have, you know, some some risk here. So you may want to take some chips off the table, right? I mean, imagine hearing that on CNBC, that would never happen. Uh, so, lunch, he'd never be invited back on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and again, you, and maybe you have like a bull bear segment where you have a bull guy and a bear guy and they debate it off. You know I mean? There's so many things that you could do to be really informative, um, you know, in, in a 30 minutes or an hour once a day, I think it'd be fantastic. We could, we could televise if you're comfortable. I don't want to speak for you, but yeah. we could, we could literally televise your portfolio meetings with Michael, where you guys are just going through oh, you know, hey, these <laughs> allegation decisions we're going to make. What are we, let's argue. What, what, what are we going to end up deciding here? I mean, there's, there's a zillion things we could do. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I think there's, and there's so many good people out there um, in terms of, you know, other, you know, financial analysts and, and, and financial investors and professional investors that, you know, you could do a whole lot with a channel that I think would really help people figure out how to manage their money better. And then you could create a whole nother channel just on financial planning, because that's a whole, a whole nother bailiwick. Uh, Already on the radar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just stuff that people need to understand about how to manage their money better. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, today I asked you your opinion of, of Michael Pento's outlook there on, on U.S. Treasuries. We could have had you and Pento here talking about it yourselves, right? I mean, we, we, we again, there's so many things we could be doing with this medium. Um, all right, well, look, we'll leave it there. Um, folks, just in wrapping up, um, I want to remind everybody that uh, tickets for Wealthion's uh, online fall conference are still at sale at the early bird price of nearly 30% off. So if you haven't yet gone and registered for it, do so soon to lock that lowest price in. And of course, if you're an alumnus of our previous conferences, check your email. You'll have a code from me to get an additional 15% discount off of that 30% discount that I mentioned. Um, but I can't remember exactly when that expires, but it is coming up. So act soon. Um, and uh, as we say always every week, you know, there's a uh, uh, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of decisions that the average person needs to take into account in deciding how to navigate their wealth through what may be coming, whether it's a run up to the end of this year or whether it's something surprising in the markets that get those people that are you know, saying, look, uh, you know, we could crack below key support. Who knows? But the point is, is you should be working with a professional financial advisor who can guide you through all this, create a personalized, bespoke uh, financial plan for your portfolio and implement that plan for you while keeping you well informed. Uh, there really aren't that many out there that do that in a way that takes into account all the macro issues that Lance and I talked about here. But if you have a good one who's doing that for you, you should stick with them. But if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance and his team there at Real Investment Advice, um, then highly recommend that you uh, talk to one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses and to set up a free consultation with them just fill out the short form at wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple seconds to fill out that form. Consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these advisors. It's just a public service they offer to help as many people as possible position as prudently as possible today. 
Lance, uh, it's been wonderful, my buddy. Uh, uh, folks watching, if you enjoy seeing Lance and I go toe-to-toe -to -toe every week, mano a mano like this, do us a favor, support, uh, show us your support for this program by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below. As usual, Lance, you get the last word for the week. Look, have a great weekend. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen next week, but the Fed meeting will be key for that, and we'll talk about it next Saturday. All right. Look forward to talking about that with you next Saturday, Lance. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.